This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, this is Monica Perez here with Ryan Heath, fighting for freedom, that's his middle name, and working on the Gavel Project. So you know how I like lawyers who are fighting the good fight, they use their superpowers for good. And I think Ryan Heath is one of those handful of lawyers I know who does that. So hello, Ryan, thank you for being here. Hi, Monica, it's my honor. I'm, I'm very happy to be here speaking with you. That is so great, I have been surveying your work. And the first thing I want to talk about is your journey, because you're a young guy. And I'm guessing that you this isn't your retirement project that you've got just millions of dollars in the bank and are dedicating your life to good. I want to hear a little bit about just the last few years and how you went from law school to it seems to me that you're like majority pro bono. I can't figure it out. So tell me your story. Yeah. So I had a very unique uh, upbringing. I blew my left knee out playing football um, four times and I ended up getting, uh, had an issue with the opioids. Um, so I lived in the woods for two months. I had a, my college paid for, uh, but unfortunately I spent all of that money on getting well. And so I had to figure out how to pay for school on my own. And uh, I went to undergrad. I was a high school graduate from 2011 and I did community college for a number of years. I know you've talked oh, about Oh yeah, them. I went from community college to, I dropped out of high school, went to community college and ended up at Harvard. And now people are transferring from community college to Ivy Leagues or whatever all the time. Like when I did it, it was really hard to do. <laughs> I was a, I was a, a trailblazer. You, you were. And you know, I, I didn't follow you directly. I didn't go to a, an Ivy League for undergrad. I went to Arizona State, but I did pay for school on my own. I mean, you did that as well. You worked really hard. And uh, at one point I had three jobs full-time and uh, I was, you know, blessed to be able to do that and really redeem myself. So I, I got married very young as well. Um, anyway, I, uh, I got a near full ride to go to law school at Regent University School of Law, which is in Virginia Beach. It's a great law school. Oh, fun. Yeah. And uh, I was class president. I was president of the Business Law Society. I was very involved. I had my wife and I had kids while I was in school in my second year. Uh, anyway, I'm in my third year, about to graduate. It's is, uh, January of 2020. I was in D.C. and I was blessed to have an opportunity to learn from Justice Samuel Alito. He was actually a professor of mine in law school. Really? Uh, yeah, it, it, Region is one of the best uh, kept secrets in law. They, yeah. We have the best professors across the board. To get a free ride to law school, because they don't really have to do that. I mean, they know that you're going to be able to pay the loans. They're not pulling you up out of the gutter, but I guess they wanted you to go there. But what a, what a redemption story. Yeah, I, I just, um, I really wanted to make something of myself when I, when I messed up. And so I've been uh, working extremely hard to do that. And 
anyway, I was a young dad. I'm 31 years old. I have two kids now, but my, my wife and I were, uh, just about ready to kind of figure out what to do with my law career when COVID happened. And so I was halfway through spring break and we got an email basically saying, you're not going back to school. So, um, I ended up working for a firm out of California. I was taking over their Arizona office uh, here locally after I graduated and passed the bar. Uh, and I was I did some sales before I went to law school. Did you graduate so on time despite COVID? Like they didn't let you go back to school, but could you finish that semester and get your degree? Yeah, I, I finished uh, law school in my garage. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a- yeah, we had the little kids, so we did, yeah. there was no one else for me to go. I bet. Yeah, I always thought that it was so regressive, COVID, because not everybody has one room for everybody, a computer for everyone, another room to stockpile Costco supplies. And yeah, you got to make do. Good for you. Yeah, well, praise God, I was able to do it. Um, we we were really kind of, well, I took a year, I guess, to, to work for this firm, going back to the store here. And um my sister got threatened with uh, termination from her job at Phoenix Children's Hospital. So she's a nurse uh, and she was unvaccinated. And this was uh, July of 2021. She got a letter from the CEO telling her she needed to change her body permanently or she was going to uh, be terminated uh, without any, you know, there's no compensation or um, you know, benefit of the bargain being offered in exchange for the, the changing of the agreement. So I wrote three letters uh, to the uh, CEO and to the board, and I ended up getting a letter uh, back from my sister the day after she was supposed to get terminated and she got to keep her job. And wow, so, that's great. You know how important that is, because what they did was they systematically eliminated anyone who did not just follow orders from healthcare. So I had I had to go to the hospital once. And I mean, I was absolutely demonized for being unvaccinated because there wasn't a single nurse there who, you know, everybody who wouldn't was gone. Yeah. And you're in California as well. So it's even worse. I mean, it's it's even more nutty. Crazy. We'll we'll get to my experience in California in a minute. I I spent some time there. Um, So I I ended up uh, having this boat of confidence. And when my wife was seven months pregnant with with our second daughter, uh, I told her basically after it was the day after Gavin Newsom said he was going to make the vaccine a contingent precedent for getting an education in California, that I was going to quit my job and start a nonprofit. So I did that. I started the Gavel Project in October of 2021. We didn't have any seed money, so we took the the money that I was supposed to be buying my new big boy lawyer, lawyer car with, and uh, we used all of that. We liquidated a vehicle, and um, I ended up spending three months at the beginning of 2022 flying around California and educating families about how to civilly disobey their school's COVID-19 mask mandates. So I went from uh, San Diego, California, all the way up to to Sacramento, and I would meet with families and homes. I would meet with families in restaurants and back rooms. And I would basically just talk about the law. Here are your civil rights. You have a right to disagree. I wish I had known you then. I was really looking for people to just elucidate that. I mean, I have a law degree, but you really have to know, as you know, that's not the most practical way to get this information. And um, it's just critical. Yeah, but the, I mean, it was just a really interesting time. And so I, I wasn't able to connect with a lot of people. I actually deleted all of my social media back in 2017 when I was working for a tech startup that was selling smart Wi-Fi technology because it freaked me out. Um, yeah, I got into that field and I knew exactly what they were doing with my dad or I had an idea of it. And I didn't want to uh, participate and actually provide this information to social media so they could manipulate me. So I got rid of everything except for LinkedIn. 
And so when I started the Gavel project, I started at zero. I didn't have any following. I didn't have any presence online. I had to build that. Um, I remember Instagram was really what I focused on early. And uh, I had videos. I was basically going around speaking at school board meetings. I was uh, speaking into my camera when I was outside of schools, leading protests, actually negotiating between the police and the parents and the principals, like kids were uh, sneaking back into class. I sat outside of high school um, in South Orange County for three days. And I, I helped a uh, young man, 16-year-old, uh, sneak back into class for three days, even though he was you know, suspended from school and not allowed to be there. And he actually was the bravest uh, person I ever met. He, he offered to peacefully submit to arrest because he had been suspended from campus and the sheriffs were right there. Yeah, he was, he was quite brave. So they didn't do anything, obviously. Good, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just, a, it was a really interesting kind of hectic time. But I ended up um, kind of falling into election law after another, yes. let's say, five, six months of uh, trying to find ways to fund all of these different lawsuits that we'd set up. The idea initially was to set up Rosa Parks style lawsuits um, around California based on uh, Title 42, Section 1983 of the U.S. Code, as well as the First Amendment and the right of individuals to disagree with compelled orthodoxy. And this is all based on uh, West Virginia v. Barnett, which is a really old Supreme Court case from the 1940s regarding Jehovah's Witnesses' rights to refuse to participate in a compelled ceremony. It's also based on a case called Tinker v. Des Moines. And I'm talking about the masks to be specific. And, and in essence, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution uh, protects much more than your words. It actually protects your conduct. So, for example, if uh, we are in a war with Ukraine, and, which we're not really, I guess, <laughs> Ukraine's fighting Russia, but if the Ukraine conflict's going on right now and I take a Ukrainian flag and I go to a public park, and I light that flag on, on fire, right now, under the circumstances of our time, my conduct is going to be protected speech. I can't be punished for my, my protest, my expressive act. And the same is true back in uh, January, February of March of 2022, when California is the last state in the country to take the masks off kids. Taking a mask off your face as a student in that situation is protected speech because it sends a clear message to anyone watching you actually take the mask off your face. And so uh, that's really the, the basis of what we've done. We have uh, three lawsuits right now we're funding uh, based on those circumstances in California. We've sued uh, Coronado Unified School District. We've sued Saddleback Valley Unified School District. We have sued um, ABC Unified School District as well. So we go around hiring attorneys and we, I raise money. Uh, to fund these lawsuits. That's what I do. So we're a 501c3 public charity. And uh, anyone wanting to give to support our cause, I, I would encourage that. Uh, Thegavelproject.com, you can give a tax-deductible donation right there. Um, well, go well, ahead, Monica. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the I want to ask about the mask. Is what happens when the answer is that it was a public health regulation? It's a good question. So the, the Constitution um, doesn't isn't suspended when we have a public health emergency. It's the, the burden's actually on the state to demonstrate that the, the, what they're trying to compel you to do as a citizen is effective. It's based on science and it's justified. 
And so we're talking about mask mandates. We had students as young as elementary school. I mean, these kids in Saddleback Valley Unified School District, they were kicked out of class for four weeks. They had to sit in the uh, the quad area. It actually was basically a, a jail cell, an outdoor jail cell. They were put into a courtyard surrounded by metal bars all the way around, told they had to sit down at these desks and they weren't allowed to leave except to use the restroom. These were 10, 11, 12-year-old students. And they sat out there for four weeks refusing to comply. So um, when you basically have one of these situations, it's the government's burden to demonstrate that what they're doing is, is safe and effective. It actually you know, is for the purpose. And it's, we knew at the time that COVID didn't harm kids and that masks didn't work. Right. It was basically a, a compelled uh, ceremony. And we know from Barnett that you can't be compelled to participate in a ceremony where the object of the ceremony to an outside observer, in that case, the flag, which sends a message of, of unity, nationalism, patriotism, for example, is what the court said in that case. Or here, masks, which sends a message of, I agree with the state. These things are safe and effective. It works. Uh, You can't be compelled to engage in a ceremony where uh, there is some sort of imagery in a ceremony that sends a message to an outside observer. That's compelled speech. And so uh, that's sort of the basis of all the mask lawsuits that we've been filing, predominantly under the Bain Act, which is the, uh, the California state statute that's the equivalent of the First Amendment. Uh, it protects students participating in free speech protests so long as their conduct is not disruptive to the learning environment and is not dangerous to other students. And neither of those things are true with respect to masks. Are all of these suits still going on or has any been settled or decided? Oh, you'll, you'll like this. So we have three, three are still going on. One is in the uh, California Court of Appeals. I don't remember the division. I think it's the fourth. Um, that case was dismissed on an anti-slap. The judge, I don't know what he was thinking, but he took, and you'll like this, judicial notice of the fact that our client was dangerous in her protest because she was an asymptomatic spreader of COVID-19. There was no evidence of that. Well, that's an impossible thing to prove because I don't think it's possible to do. I've spoken with Steve Kirsch, who's a friend of mine. Oh, yeah, I know who he is. I mean, I don't know him, but I know who he is. He, he's, he contends there's not a single scientific study that actually supports the proposition of asymptomatic spread. Yes, I believe like typhoid Mary, I don't think was real. Like it was a real person who was persecuted for spreading typhoid, but I don't think she did it. Remember that story where she was supposedly spread typhoid around the country because she had it, but she never had symptoms. So she was ostracized and, you know, whatever, cordoned off forever. But I'm pretty sure she didn't do anything. It's amazing. I mean, even for the, the right now, like the, the typhoid issue, the, the COVID issue, to demonstrate someone is, is a asymptomatic spreader of COVID-19 per the FDA, you can find this on their website, you have to give them four antigen tests. Four. That's not accurate. Yeah, they did a, before COVID, I actually researched this, there was a study, I think it was, I don't know if it was in Times Square or whatever, they just had random people walking down the street. I think it was in the winter and they got many dozens, if not, you know, more than a hundred people and asked them about that. And, you know, if they had observed their symptoms, asked them if they were sick and took nasal swabs to see if there was any virus present in their muca, like the stellar mucus, like the stuff that was going to spew out saliva mucus. I, you know, you can't, you're not spreading it if it's not coming out of your face somehow. So they tried to detect if there was virus in anybody's face holes who wasn't actually sick and there wasn't. So and that was before COVID. So it just asymptomatic. I never believed it. The first example of it 
or the one thing that launched COVID everywhere that launched this was February, I think it was like as early as February 2020, where in Germany, a Chinese person from China who was new, like going to a meeting there, supposedly was an asymptomatic spreader. And within day, and Fauci cited this case all over the place. Within days, it, there was an article in mainstream German newspapers saying that person was totally symptomatic and took cold medicine. However, I don't even know about what contagion is, but that story was not true. And that's what Fauci, I mean, months after they would still refer to it, but it was absolutely not true. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, it, it's really a shame the, you know, the wool that was pulled over people's eyes with respect to COVID. And uh, there were a few people out there that got it right. Uh, you know, Brett Weinstein, Dr. Heather Hying, at least they, they got a lot of things right, not everything correct. But uh, I know Robbie the Fire, mm -hmm. Dave uh, Smith as well, and part of the problem, they were hammering this every single day, talking about the actual evidence. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in his book, The Real Anthony Fauci, laid it all out. I mean, this th th we really were duped as a nation into sacrificing our liberty and transferring, you know, the largest wealth transfer in human history over the past couple of years. People don't seem to realize that happened during COVID. Doesn't it worry you that so many people did fall for that and it was dropped down on partisan lines for the most part? Like, isn't that like uh, alarming that human nature is that manipulable? Yeah, I, I think that people are, I mean, this is what I see when I go around and I, I speak to at school board meetings. I spend a lot of time with kids around California, you know, during the COVID-19 mandates and the protests that I led. Uh, these kids are terrified of stepping out of line. It's really indoctrinated yeah. into them that um, public shaming is, is perhaps the worst thing you can experience as someone in our society. When my kids at the beginning of lockdown, like their friends would still like didn't know what was going on and people would come over and I would absolutely be like, take your mask off. It's fine. Whatever. Fully expecting because I was a bit of a rebellious teenager growing up in, you know, upstate New York and right on the outskirts of the city. And like nobody would take that crap like they couldn't enforce smoking laws, anti-smoking laws until they were fining restaurant owners like people just like, yeah, you take your take your rules. And uh, and. The first couple of days, kids were like, yeah, you're right. And then after a while, you know, within like a week or two, they were freaked out by me. And I didn't know if it, I think it was the parents. I think the parents were scaring the crap out of these kids. 
Yeah, I remember I've heard so many stories from kids that I've spoken to, uh, elementary school kids, high school kids, having uh, talking about how their teachers, when they would take their mask off, told them they were you know, vile and disgusting, yeah. telling them they were going to murder. They're basically killing other people in the class. Yeah. They were going to kill their parents. Yeah. They were going to kill their grandparents. Uh, that's a lot for a young individual. Yeah. To I heard stuff like that yeah, in my ears. Yeah, I mean, my I personally heard people saying stuff like that, and I was just disgusted. Yeah, it, it really is um, uh, an amazing thing. And it's the same stuff with the LGBTQ, you know, IA stuff in school that we see these days. It's uh, you're being shamed into accepting a false reality for the benefit of the medical industrial complex, which is transing these kids and yeah. creating permanent life customers. Not defending these kids. Like, in my opinion, if you're going to you know, mutilate yourself, decide to sterilize yourself, become a lifetime customer and totally untested stuff. That's, you know, you don't know what it's like 30 years down the line. This is happening to children and nobody, you know, you're ostracized for defending those kids. I'm worried about those kids, the actual victims. And you're, you are shamed into not defending them. And I actually think the reason that they're targeting kids is because they just could never get enough adults to do that. And your brain doesn't really make those good decisions till after you're 25. And I think they just, they want to do these experiments and they know that the only way to do it is to take, is to take vulnerable kids whom they've just softened up with this COVID stuff, you know, making yeah. them all mental. So, so how did your attention turn to election stuff? Because I was interested in that for a long time. And then it just became clear, you know, they were they were turning the tables on that. I just like in Georgia, it's outrageous. I, and like, um, was it Isaacson? Who was the, I forget who it was. There was a senator who definitely won. And the funny business on the, people were like, oh, Trump won Georgia. I'm like, I'm not worried at all. Like, I, that's the, the last thing I'm worried about, that, that the Senate, went Democrat because of the Georgia ballots. That's what upset me. And they and nobody really pursued it in any legally effective way. I was shocked. Yeah, I, I didn't want to get into election litigation. To be clear, I fell into it. Um, I've been doing, uh, you know, fundraising for over a year at the time and ended up um, going basically broke. My, my wife has a, a very good job and, and she has been supporting our family throughout this entire process. I was she's, wondering. Yeah, she's a very smart person, much smarter than me, actually. And uh, she she really was you know, taking one for the team throughout this. I mean, I had no income. I went from a uh, paying job to nothing to paying oh into gosh. a nonprofit oh that we never going to get money back from. Yeah. And so it, it comes November and I got a call from someone who recommended that I get into election work because they had read my, my content. They thought that my writing was good. They thought that my, my capacities were strong. And so I got hired by True the Vote uh, to work for, for a state senator in Arizona. And um, I, I filed a lawsuit in Mojave County uh, challenging the uh, election for 2022. And uh, that didn't go as, as planned. We ended up dismissing that case voluntarily, partly because one of the, the main issues that we were litigating, which is signature verification for mail-in ballots, was also being litigated by Carrie Lake in her case. And she had a, a substantially similar uh, cause of action in her complaint. And so we thought, okay, they can handle this. What I didn't realize at the time is that Carrie Lake's attorneys had missed finding precedent in their research 
uh, this case called Reyes v. Cumming out of Yuma County from 1997, which set aside, actually overturned an election, voided it a year after the results because the county recorder failed to conduct signature verification in accordance with law. And so um, I ended up suing Carrie Lake's judge in the Arizona Supreme Court uh, as a pro se litigant based on their failure. So, so the judge could come up with that precedent. It doesn't have to be in the brief. It is a precedent, right? And he should have, like his clerk might have, or I don't know how they, they do that, but you, you could have told him, right? But it was too late. Yeah, it was too late. And you'll love this. The, the precedent, the actual substantive portion of the precedent was not available in LexisNexis. It was just gone. Wow. For people wondering, LexisNexis wow. is a research database for lawyers. It's like the second largest one in the nation. And all the case said in Lexis was reversed and remanded with instructions. Are there, do they even make real law books anymore? Like, could you do your research in the library? You, you could, date? theoretically, yeah. Up to date? I mean, it, uh, yeah, you could, theoretically. Wow. Um, it, it's just that it's crazy. That, that thing, to me, is a huge That is. Black. And in Georgia, was the exact same thing. So I used to do a lot, a lot of interviews, like 30 interviews with Garland Favorito. We just, he was a guy who was fighting for election integrity in Georgia in the uh, specifically to examine the Fulton County ballots, which would have been a real difference maker. And we just followed it blow by blow. It was a little bit of overkill, I think, just to follow it that closely. But uh, it ends up that in the, at the end of his case, this really infuriated me because the whole time I was like, do you have standing? Like, you know, it's been adjudicated before. It's like hard to get standing on like a public, you know, with, you know, tax policy or something like that. It's like hard to get standing for an individual. And he said, yeah, I got standing. This is what it's based on. I was like, that's great. And then at the very end, after months and months of litigation and victories, little small victories, the judge dismissed it on lack of standing, which was outrageous. But the reason Garland was fighting this particular kind of side battle was that the main stuff which was, um, I forget, I forget the people who were doing it, like, um, uh, there were the two really prominent lawyers, I want to call one like Lon and the other Sydney, I can't really remember, but um, they were supposed to, they, they said that they were filing like the, the main lawsuits, which were pretty slam dunky, and they like missed filing deadlines and didn't file, you know, and I'm thinking... You know, I don't know. So I don't want to be, you know, I, I don't want you to make insinuations about your situation, which I know absolutely nothing about. But I was really didn't like that a lot of these suits that I was aware of were not handled well. And I just that's weird to me. Yeah, and, and this one really wasn't handled well either. This is Carrie Lake's case. Um, you know, they, they missed that precedent. I ended up, instead of getting disciplined by the Supreme Court, so I, just let's take a step back. A writ of mandamus for people listening is in basically in a, a writ that you ask the court to issue compelling a government official to do their job. So I was asking them to compel Judge Thompson to reverse his decision before it was actually decided by the Arizona Court of Appeals. And I was asking the Supreme Court to intervene in that case to send it back down and decide it based on binding precedent so that the signature verification issue could be heard. Nice. And so instead of getting disciplined, instead of getting disbarred for filing a frivolous lawsuit, the Supreme Court told me to intervene as amicus curiae in Carrie Lake's right. case. Which means that you are not her lawyer, but you still can file a brief on her side. Is that right? That's like right. Yeah. So it's a friend of the, friend court. Of the court. Yeah, exactly. 
And so you're basically providing this third-party perspective uh, about the way the law should be analyzed and how the outcome should be uh, handled. And so I ended up intervening uh, after I sued Carrie Lake's judge. I got hired by a very wealthy individual in Maricopa County, found my lawsuit, thought it was very good. Um, I ended up intervening in the Supreme Court and I won as amicus in the Supreme Court, which is in very difficult. I did, wow. yes, on the issue of signature verification. Oh, that's interesting because when I was listening to you um, on the SG. Report, I forget what it's called. SGT report, yeah. So I was listening to you on that, and I thought that okay, I didn't realize that you won that, and I did think Carrie's own side was still fighting that, but maybe that was a dated interview. I don't know. So by by won that case, I mean I I was the reason that the case was sent back down on the issue of signature verification for a new trial. So basically, they were trying to to. The issue, the signature verification claim was initially dismissed in a motion to dismiss at the trial level. It went up to the Supreme Court of Arizona. And then my brief is the reason they remanded it to for another trial. So she had a second shot at it in May. In May, like almost a year ago? May of 23. So what's what happened? So um, her attorneys tried the case. And instead of making the legal argument, uh, the matter of law argument right. about the so definition. You don't have to of, determine the facts at all. You're just saying this is I just on a basis of law alone. So no jury, no nothing. It's you have to rule this way. Right. Yeah. They they made a factual argument instead. Right. They they brought in these experts. They brought in all of the, this testimony and they argued that signature verification did not in fact happen in Arizona, in Maricopa County, which is really a, they conceded that point for some reason. It was I, a very yes, strategic, makes me terrible move. crazy when they stipulate to things that are so like a lot of the January 6th trials were like that. I'm like, don't stipulate that this guy is, you know, this or that, like make them prove every last bit of it. Yeah. In essence, their, their argument was something along the lines of uh, the statute ARS 16550A, which is the signature verification statute. It says upon receipt of the mail-in affidavit envelope, this is the envelope that your ballot goes into and you send that back in. It's a green envelope. Uh, the county recorder shall compare the signature thereon to the signature on the voter's registration record. And it uses that term very specifically, registration record. And um, what they were arguing in that case is that no comparison happened because the, at the rate at which comparisons were happening for hundreds of thousands of ballots was so rapid that they couldn't have done a substantive review of the signature to be verified against the registration record signature. Just physically impossible they, based on the elapsed time. Correct. Okay. And they did prove to their credit that hundreds of thousands of ballots were you know, verified and accepted based on a comparison that was done in under three seconds. So that, that's very interesting. Um, but what they didn't argue about and what they should have argued about and what actually another court in Arizona has ruled upon in a motion to dismiss up in Yavapai County in September is that there, the registration record means the document that you signed when you are registering to vote. They didn't argue about that at all. And, and they should have. Actually, I tried to intervene in that case as amicus in the Superior Court on behalf of the same client. And Carrie Lake's attorneys inexplicably objected to the filing, including this argument that was later very, you know, uh, vindicated in another court. So um, she lost. So wait a second. I just want to be clear. So <laughs> yeah. the so the signatures were being compared to something other than the registration to vote? 
Yeah, so registration record under Arizona law means a document that you sign when you are registering or re-registering. Like to at vote. the DMV, and they do that here. It's on the back of your license application. Correct. And Arizona is a very unique state. When you register to, to vote in statewide elections, you have to show identification and prove that you are a citizen of the United States, unlike many other That's states, right. at the time you register. And so uh, what the Maricopa County did, and this is what came out at the trial, which is kind of why I was lighting my hair on fire, fire watching this trial, is that uh, Ray Valenzuela, who was the elections director, testified to the fact that the way they do signature verification in Maricopa County is they, they use and they list sequentially in their database the most historical signature submitted by the voter. That is not necessarily a signature from the registration record. That includes, and this is what they testified to, prior vote-by-mail affidavit signatures that were captured in previous elections. So those are unverified, and, right? Correct, because you don't have to show your right. ID when you vote by mail in Arizona. All you do is you sign the green envelope, you put the ballot inside, and you send it in. So that's not a registration Definitely not, signature. and it's valid to not think that. Like, that's not valid. Right? It, right. That's and a so, signature that has never been verified. Never correct. connected to you, you and your, you as a person and as your documentation. Interesting. That's right. And so um, basically, unfortunately, they objected to, to the argument being included. Carrie Lake lost. Now she's in the appeal process. Uh, in the meantime... Hold on. So I, I'm sorry. I get it. But I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I keep missing little details. This is the question. So she... They did or did not... So they said it was just too fast. And you were saying that that's the wrong method. And they did or did not include that? They, they did not rule on, on it favorably as far as what her argument went, uh, was. So they, she was saying they didn't compare because it was impossible for them to right. have compared meaningfully. And the judge basically said, and this was actually correct, I predicted this publicly on my Twitter before the, the decision was, was out. Uh, Arizona law doesn't require any substantive comparison. The law doesn't say you oh, have yes. to look at a signature for you know, three seconds, four yeah, seconds, right. Okay, yeah, it's subjective. Because I was just looking at something for three seconds. I was like, I could do it. I could do that. And, and is it a human being who's doing it? Correct. So they have um, uh, multiple levels of a signature verification process in Maricopa County, which has 66% of the vote in Arizona on any given election. And at the first level, what the way they did it is they have a computer screen. Basically, you send your ballot in, it gets collected by the county. The outside envelope is scanned by a third-party processor named Runback. They take an image of your signature. They put it on a screen for the reviewer to actually look at. And on one side of the screen is your new signature that you're submitting for review. And on the other side of the screen, and this is what we learned about at the trial, uh, is the most recent historical signature that was submitted by the voter, meaning a prior vote-by-mail affidavit signature. Right, Previously verified, verified. I could totally do but, that in three seconds. So couldn't you? I could. The problem is, is they were doing exclusive comparisons. There were no other signatures on the screen from the registration record for them to actually compare right. no, against. No, I agree. So your argument makes, is like dispositive or whatever. Like you, you definitely, that's true. They're, nobody's even arguing against that. Like nobody's arguing that fact. So, so then what happens? So they, so why did your thing not prevail? Why did your argument not prevail? was not adjudicated? It wasn't included because Mer because uh, Carrie Lake's attorneys objected to the amicus filing. What? They objected to it? Correct. Why? 
Well, I, to be blunt, I got into a bit of an argument with one of her attorneys who I believe has a bit of an ego so problem. Spite? And um, I, I'm not I, putting well, words in your mouth, but they didn't give an, an, it, an answer it, like this guy's <laughs> making us look bad because his stuff is written in crayon. I, I potentially I'm, I'm not going to you know, right. say definitively either yeah, way. I don't want to, you know, make you uncomfortable. It just makes it to object to it. He started calling me a fed publicly. Like that, that was his response to all of this. He started saying oh. that I worked for the federal agent, that I was an agent of, you know, the, the FBI. But even if this was on his Twitter, I mean, but even if you were a limited hangout, me. you, ha you had the thing that would win. I did. And it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, I don't understand why it happened still to wow, this day. That is, but I mean, to give you an idea, like I now represent Abraham Hamaday, who was himself an attorney and running for Arizona's attorney general in multiple election lawsuits in Arizona. So, um, you know, we're challenging the results of his race. He lost by 280 votes. One of them is called a quo warranto action, which I filed at the end of last month. Um, I went from all, all this time basically working out of my kid's playroom to having a big, beautiful office in North Scottsdale. I have multiple attorneys working for me now. Like I, my business oh. has been growing so, significantly. So what? So this is your own personal law firm that you do work for pay. So like you're you're starting Correct. to contribute to your household again. <laughs> That's yeah. good. Finally. That's good, my though. No, I mean, you, you made, you did something, you know, admirable and bold, and I hope it pays off. I mean, I hope you, you get some value for it in your own personal life. Why not? Yeah, well, you know, the, the gavel project is very expensive to run, and we needed to be able to sustain that as well. I, I pay my attorneys now to work for the nonprofit pro bono, so we actually continue to get back. If you give yeah. all my hours... Uh, going yeah. back pro bono hours, I've given thousands and thousands of pro bono hours since 2020. And I, if you add my time up, what it's worth, what I'm getting paid now per hour, it's millions of dollars right? that I've given to charity. So, I mean, that uh, if you're saying thousands and thousands, that means that you did it full time for at least two years. Correct. Right. I, I still work for the, the, the nonprofit. I'm still right. the president so, and CEO. I don't get what compensated. Is it, what, is it, what is it doing right now? Like, what are your open cases at the Gavel Project, if any? So we have four cases right now. Uh, one of them involves a young girl that was forced to apologize. She's in Capistrano Unified School District, South Orange County. We have a trial uh, March, I think it's 15th or 19th. I'll get to Coming the date later on. Uh, yeah, well, she was forced to apologize for making a painting that said all lives matter. She was told that it was inappropriate and racist by her principal. She was forced to apologize in front of her friends. So we, we are funding that lawsuit. We have three other uh, additional COVID-19 mask mandate lawsuits. We, we, um, I'm, my for-profit has, has got a case we're going to be filing soon. This is not the Gallup Project. Uh, over the Peoria Unified School District here in Arizona, their gender policy, their bathroom policy. It's based on the Establishment Clause of the United States Constitution. Uh, James Lindsay is an expert in that case. He's agreed to, to work with me on that one. So, And what, what, is uh, yeah, the, what is it? What's the Establishment? How does that tie in? The Establishment of Religion. So that in essence, the idea is, you know, the First Amendment protects you from being uh, compelled or encouraged by your uh, professors or your teachers in, in the elementary school context from adopting any particular religious ideology. And the argument based on uh, this is the, the 1960s precedent, uh, U.S. v. Seeger, about uh, conscientious objectors, the idea of what a religion is, is it is a person's ultimate concern. It is the like if someone has a belief that governs their life, a belief system, for example, that isn't necessarily a traditional religion, 
but it, it is so profound to the individual that is a, it is akin to a traditional belief in God. The United States Supreme Court says that's a religious ide- ideology. And so gender ideology is a religious ideology. That's the argument that we're making. It violates the Establishment Clause because if you are a school and you are allowing males to use female facilities, you are forcing females to participate in religious ceremonies and actually accept the ideals of other students. And so this goes back to you know my time with Justice Alito uh, when I was in D.C. in January of 2020. We talked a lot about this case. These types of cases, the Establishment Clause in particular, uh, there's a case called the the Bladensburg Cross case. I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. It might be Bladensburg. It's a Maryland case uh, that went up to the Supreme Court about this gigantic cross in the middle of an intersection that was being funded by taxpayers. Uh, and someone brought a lawsuit saying this is an establishment clause issue. You're forcing me to you know, drive by this thing every day, supporting the religion of Christianity. And the Supreme Court said, no, 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 that's, that's not right. The, this is not an establishment clause issue because consistent with our nation's history and traditions, there is a secular purpose for this. The, the cross was erected. It's a particular type of cross that was erected after World okay, War I, yeah. where a whole bunch of soldiers basically were, were killed right. in battle. And uh, this cross pertains to the area in Europe where they died. It was a, a common cross that was used to bury these soldiers. Basically, the whole town's men got wiped out in the First World War. And so they erected this giant statue to commemorate them. It had nothing to do necessarily with religion. And so as long as there's you know, this joint purpose and it doesn't violate the nation's histories and, and traditions, it's permissible. But In this case, we're talking about gender ideology, which is something that is rooted in the 1970s, 1960s with John Money and a few other, I think it was Kinsey is the other uh, creepy pedophile that was just doing this sort of stuff. And it's not consistent with the nation's history and traditions to chop off the breasts of young girls or to, you know, permanently sterilize children using puberty blockers. So uh, we're making that argument. I'm very confident that that will succeed. We have a number of plaintiffs now. We'll be filing, uh, by, I'm hoping, by the end of this month, depending on how the election lawsuits I have go. Uh, so, yeah, we're doing all sorts of were work. Were there any, in that case, were there any other grounds that you considered, or or was it just crystal clear that it was establishment? Uh, so it's crystal clear that it's an establishment clause violation. As long as you can show that this ideology governs all aspects of its adherents' lives, which is true with someone who claims that they are in fact a like a man that claims they are in fact a woman, uh, they're rejecting all notions of reality. They're acting on faith in, in the same aspect that I have to act on when I'm a Christian. I can't point to the Bible and say this is definitive proof. It's a book that was written two thousand plus years ago. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily establish that Jesus, you know, rose from the dead and died for my sins, but it's something that I take on faith. I have to take a leap of faith to believe it. The same is true about gender ideology. It, it rejects all notions of science. It's something that you have to accept purely on faith for the most part. And it, it is religious practice. See, with the bathrooms, I always think a couple of things about that is like, and I don't even like the biological, like at birth sex. I like equipment should match equipment. You know, if you if you get a penis, you're going to pee on my seat. So that you don't belong there. And then there's also like the idea of, you know, if you're in a, you know, a a rest stop on the highway, it's a dangerous place. And, you know, a rapist weapon is a penis. And so you like do not want to be in a private place where you have to be and have that danger. So I can, you know, there are practical reasons to make these determinations. And uh, I just never hear anybody 
talking about them, but I that's not a constitutional issue. So I'm a constitutional. Yeah, right. Nerd. No, it's the constitution. I mean, I, you can't really I live and live for the stuff. Yeah, that would just those are just decisions that you would make that arguments that you would use to justify your decision on a local level to the institution that you're arguing. But yeah, that to actually, you know, take it to that to that level, you'd have to have constitutional grounds for it. But I did find the First Amendment thing very interesting about about the masks, um, because it really was. It it was like wearing it's it, it's like it was just like saluting a flag, I feel like. And I wouldn't I wouldn't do it in the beginning. I would go to the grocery store and I would just laugh. I would see old people, people of color, like people who I thought like these guys aren't falling for this. And uh, in the beginning, you weren't getting the old people. They were deathly afraid of death. And I'm just like, dude, you're going to have to come to terms with this pretty soon either way. <laughs> so yeah. why, why, why are we, why do you flush it for all of us? Um, but I did get a little more sympathy, I think from like immigrants and minorities and stuff who were not in the habit of trusting the government when it came to stuff like that. But I don't, and a lot of that persisted, but a lot of it didn't, a lot of people ended up, you know, when once, once there were there was sickness because for a long time there was no sickness. I would argue until the vaccines were rolled out, there was no sickness. But and right. n- not not that I, I recall. And then people just didn't know what to make of it. So I feel like we lost them then. So maybe maybe that's a little justification for why some of the people fell for it is that in the beginning, maybe they didn't. But once they actually and then they would go to the hospital and people would never come back. They give them a PCR test. Yeah. It would be, you know, 46% false positive and the hospital would rake in the millions. And you, you weren't allowed that, to go yeah. into the hospital to take care of your people, which is really scary. I mean, what they can do when you're in there. I had a friend um, who went into the hospital and her, and her family could not get to her. And she came out and said, yeah. like, the pressure to get certain treatments that she thought were dangerous was like almost unbearable. And I mean, she, she emerged on, you know, not permanently damaged, but I, it, it was God. scary. Yeah. It was scary. Yeah. We, I sued the Mayo Clinic at the beginning of last month for wrongful death, medical malpractice related to someone, uh, someone's loved one being killed COVID-19 protocol. So this is an area I'm in now. There was a, a girl uh, who had Down syndrome who was killed that way. And uh, my oldest son has Down syndrome and is around the same age as that girl. And I was just horrified. And, you know, some of those people are more vulnerable and you've got to be more careful, not less. So scary. Yeah, and they were giving people drugs like, um, for example, morphine and benzos from the outset and then they were relying on those individuals to give informed consent exactly. and as you know that's not possible and their and their family wasn't there that was no accident in my opinion yeah we we had um we have a number of lawsuits we'll be filing here in the coming months against different hospital providers in arizona so we're uh, we're getting into that uh, i'm actually I'm, I'm blessed to say i'm speaking at the next COVID 19 litigation conference in vegas on march 7th and 8th. oh that's so uh, cool. rfk jr is going to be speaking as well uh, a few other people so it, it's a it's a good i spoke at the last one i was blessed to be there um what what's the nature a, of the litigation for the most part what are what are the kinds of lawsuits that are being fought like vax okay. mandates or what like vax injury yeah so i'm 
I'm on two panels. I'm on the education panel and the hospital uh, negligence panel, uh, but there are all sorts of panels. So we'll be talking about uh, vaccine injuries, the PrEP Act. We'll be talking about different ways to sue, uh, you know, colleges, different ways to get the VAX mandates to go away. Uh, you know, the employer employee type mandates that we had, uh, th those types of issues are all going to be covered. Now, I would encourage everyone who's, who's interested, if you want to see RFK Jr. speak as well, it's a great opportunity. Uh, it's covidlitigation.com. It's an event put on uh, by Steve Kirsch's organization. Uh, I'm very excited to be to be going to this and speaking again. I, I don't know how many um, attorneys at 31 years old can say they've spoken to a room full of lawyers, 100 plus people about their work. So are you encouraging people to go personally or is there also a way to participate online? Uh, personally, I would encourage, especially if you're interested in, in the legal field, uh, it, vaccine injuries, oh, the the COVID nineteen yeah. medical mandates. I mean, you're you're an educated attorney. I would encourage you to come as well Thanks. to learn about these issues. It's there's a lot of money in this. Yeah, people don't realize because what people don't understand is that there's a lot of knowledge. I think that you can't sue a vaccine company for liability under the whatever 1984 thingy um, that Reagan signed, which is so annoying. But that if they are knowingly, if they knew it, then they're liable. But more than that, I, I would say it was unconscionable that companies enforced vaccine mandates, not, you know, that they, is there, are they protected because of that? There was some protection that came down for some people, but I would say I would push that envelope because that that was outrageous and totally predictable. I wrote a letter to the police department of all things. Somebody, an activist, asked me to write a letter to the police department because they were giving them a vax mandate. And all I wrote was like, here are a bunch of resources that will put a lot of doubt in your claim that this is safe and effective. And now you know, now you're on notice. And when you start costing yeah. us taxpayers money in the end, you are, you know, I don't know if it's true or not, but you're per you might be personally liable. I would certainly make that argument. And I don't think they did it, not because of what I wrote, but like people were mad. And I just, those little things like putting people, you know, if they had any reason to believe, you know, to that, you know, they, I, I'm not sure they can defend themselves because it was at that time knowable that it was a risky thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it, any new product that's being mandated across the board is risky just because we don't have long-term studies we're to show what the cause is. We're still in. All you have to do is read the FDA trial documents. We're, we're in phase five trials. They're, they're observing the incidences of myocarditis and pericarditis in, in young men. That's in the FDA yeah, document it, right now. It's extremely yeah. sad what, what happened. People, I mean, I remember this was back in July of, of 21. There was a podcast, the Dark Horse podcast hosted by Robert, uh, excuse me, yeah. Brett Weinstein. He had Robert Malone and Steve Kershaw. And the, the fact that I really took away from that, that blew me away, was that this, this new mRNA COVID-19 uh, vaccine does one thing. It codes for a cytotoxic spike protein. It, 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 cytotoxic meaning that it kills cells on contact. And so like, why would I as a perfectly healthy, uh, at the time I was 29, 29 year old, put something in my body when the probability of me being harmed by the virus itself was almost non-existent. Yes. It didn't make any sense. Yeah. 
So I really, I saw the data, I was watching it because I was pissed off because I was stuck in my garage doing, you know, law school yeah. work and studying for the bar and mask, prepping for that experience. And, and I wanted to make sure that what they were doing was justified. And it just seemed like a whole bunch of bunk the whole time. So, you know, I really got upset by this whole situation. And I, I used my capacities to try and change it. I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you go, but there is a document on the Johns Hopkins website. It's from 2017. It's called SPARS. S-P-A-R-S. And yeah, yeah it's 20, it, it's, I don't know if it's 25 like bullet points at the end or however many chapters it is, but it literally just walks through almost to like using the right names of politicians and stuff. Like it's amazing. It walks through the whole propaganda thing. And in towards the end, it talks about what are we going to do when vaccine injury becomes so clear that like we need to address it. Are we going to thank first movers for their sacrifice or what? Like, that's the question. And it's like, holy crap. So uh, now is the time to hold their feet to the fire. I mean, if ever, no, no, no yeah, more time I mean to lose. If you're out there and, and you want to make a difference, I would encourage everyone listening to contact their, their local uh, state representatives and encourage them to extend the statute of limitations for COVID-19 related injuries. Great idea. Um, yeah. So right now, like, for example, if you were fired from your job for refusing to get vaccinated, that actually in many states is a breach of contract. That's how I got my sister, uh, her, her job to keep her job at PCH. Arizona allows for implied, in fact, contractual terms that are treated as express terms under law. Uh, they, they arise from the, the circumstances of your hiring. Anytime an employer makes a, a representation to you that is detrimental to the employer's interest, but benefits the employee, that's actually a term of an agreement, even though it's an at-will state. And you can see uh, anytime the employer tries to unilaterally modify your employment contract without offering you additional consideration and having you accept the new terms. And so that was the basis of my argument that worked for my sister. And the statute of limitations is one oh, year for, no. for breach of contract. Oh, that's so terrible. We need to extend yeah. these, these, stat these statutes, um, you know, five, 10 years yeah. so that people can actually recover for what happened to them, especially with respect to the uh, injuries of people in hospitals. Governor Ducey did something unthinkable. unthinkable. He actually extended protection through executive order to uh, hospitals, even for negligent COVID-19 treatment. And the Arizona Court of Appeals, because the Arizona Constitution guarantees you the right to recover for tort injuries in Arizona, overturned yes. that precedent in Good. September. You can't, you shouldn't, no one should ever be insulated from liability. The, the tort law itself has that stuff built into it. There are different levels of your responsibility. You know, there's negligence, there's recklessness, it's intentional. Like, you yeah. don't need to protect anyone from liability if they are liable they need to be held responsible. That's that's the beauty of the system. You don't have to write everything down as a law. We don't have a statute statute based system like that. It's great. And 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 it motivates you to take care of these, to take care of every last one of these injustices by you are going to get recovery. And you're the only one who even knows that it happened. And you're the only one who can prove it and can take that. It is so empowering. And people like they want tort reform or whatever. I, I'm not sure about that, but I know I remember being in law school thinking this is perfect. I mean, it's perfect. 
it prevents people from getting shot. I mean, like the whole idea is, is you are allowed to go and become made whole by filing a lawsuit. But if that's taken away from you, I mean, what are you going to do when your when your loved ones are taken away wrongfully? That, that you have no other options but to take matters in your own hands. I mean, the, the, the motto of the gavel project is better a gavel than a gun. Nice. And it's because yes, I see what you mean. Prevent- because on injustice, true injustice really can make you crazy. And then you're going to take the law into your own hands. That's such an interesting way of thinking about it. And uh, and I just I love that. So this is the Gavel Project, uh, Ryan. It's been such a joy talking to you. And Thank people you. are absolutely loving what you're doing. Where does it say? Here's one. Semi collegiate thinks that you're a saint. Oh, that's very sweet. Um, Well, you're certainly doing this all for the right reasons. And um, so say once again, just uh, how people can help or stay in touch. I I like the Vegas thing. I like the Gavel Project. Just if you would rattle it off and I'll also put it in the show notes on monicasdeepdives.com. Yeah, I mean, the best way to keep up to date with what I'm doing is to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Ryan underscore L underscore Heath. Uh, H-E-A-T-H, just like the candy bar. Uh, if you want to, to give to the Gavel Project, I would encourage you to do that with a tax uh, tax deductible gift on our website. It's thegavelproject.com. Uh, better than giving it to the government, obviously. It, it helps us sue the government and uh, hold them accountable for their, their misdeeds. Uh, if you're looking for a representation as well in Arizona, New Mexico, or Texas, uh, you can go to heathlaw.com. And uh, we're, we're civil litigators. We take on all sorts of interesting cases, uh, predominantly for me, it's election work, but uh, we, we do all sorts what of state? stuff. So uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and Very Texas, good. and soon, soon to be Washington nice. as well. Excellent. Well, that's great. I love to promote the private practice of people who, of lawyers who are doing good work because, you know, sometimes you, you want it, somebody you can trust. And I feel like if somebody's fighting the good fight, and you can see what where your principles lie. I feel like that's, you know, half of the battle is to find somebody you can trust. And then obviously you have a proven track record. So that's great. I, I wish you luck. And I hope that your efforts, the Thank sacrifices you. that you have made, um, not only benefit the people that you were sacrificing for, but that, you know, it was a good experience for your future practice. So that would be great. Yeah, thank you. And, and I'm blessed to be here, Monica. Thanks so much it's for having me. It's been a pleasure. Me. Thank you so much. I'm going to hit the goodbye, but um, wait until after. And I want to say goodbye to you. So I'm going to uh, say goodbye to you all. Thank you so much for listening. This is soon to be the Monica Perez show right now. It is still Deep Dives with Monica Perez. And we've been talking with Ryan Heath. Thanks, guys. <laughs>